Welcome to this special midweek edition of the Southcrest Live podcast featuring the teaching of Dr. David Wilson. If this is your first time to listen, be sure to connect with us at www.southcrest.org for more information. And thanks for listening. We hope you enjoy this message from our Wednesday night series. Well, we're in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. And I invite you to turn there. Last week, we were in the first six verses. <clears throat> we talked about unity and, and the things, the reasons we're bound together, especially verse 4. There's one body, one spirit, as you were called, and one hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. <clears throat> and then you'll notice verse 7 begins with the word but, and it's an adversative rather than a simple conjunction. In other words, it's basically he tells us we're one, but in addition to that or in spite of that, notice it says each one of us, to each one of us, grace was given according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, he says, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Now this, he ascended. What does it mean? But that he also first descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who ascended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And he gave, and he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. Unity doesn't mean uniformity all the time. A lot of people think we well, don't have unity unless everybody thinks the same, everybody looks the same, everybody likes the same thing. Now, that's not going to happen in this group because I've known you too long. But we all agree that Jesus is the way to be saved. We all agree there's one God. We all agree that there's one hope of our calling and so forth, and that's what binds us together. But when you have a church, the Holy Spirit, we've been graced with his spirit. We've all been given different gifts. Mr. Rogers, you're familiar with Mr. Rogers' neighborhood. Obviously, he's been gone a while. But he used to say, there's no one exactly like you. Well, the worthy Christian has just been described in the first six verses, and now Paul describes the ministry of the gift that he has been given. These verses assume that all of us have been gifted. You may have some talents, and you can use those for the Lord, but those are not grace gifts. Grace gifts are the gifts that God gives you when his spirit lives in you and gives you the ability to do some things for one reason, to edify, to grow, to help the body of Christ. You don't use a grace gift for your own selfish reasons. You don't use a grace gift to bring um, honor to yourself. So I want you to begin by noticing the individual grace to the believer. The word but there in verse 7 could be translated in spite of that or on the other hand, contrasting the previous subject which he talked about was unity. One body, one spirit, one Lord, faith, baptism. 
And so this brings the emphasis of unity with the parallel emphasis of diversity. We are the, there are things that bind us together, yet we're all different when it comes to the gifts that God has given us. Now, what is a spiritual gift? A spiritual gift is what God has given you. It's a supernatural ability to minister. In other words, it's not something that you go do. It's something God's given you the ability to do. You don't ask for one. You don't earn it. You don't tell God which one you want. He gives it like he wants you to have it. Not all of us have the same gift. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 12, 11, he said he wants you to use your gifts for the body. 1 Corinthians 12, 11 says, but one and the same spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So if you tell somebody, well, you need to pray. If somebody tells you, you need to pray for a spiritual gift. Well, you need to pray that the Lord will reveal the gifts he's given to you, but you don't ask for one. You don't go asking for them because that's not a gift. If I ask you for something and you give it to me, it's not a gift. You give me something or you give a gift to someone as you will to give them. And Paul is writing about spiritual gifts. That means that every single believer, every single Christian has received at least one gift, one spiritual gift. The problem with churches today is we have the mentality that only the people who are gifted to serve are up here on the stage on Sundays or Wednesdays or whenever that that's our teaching in Sunday school. That's the only people that are gifted. But that's not true. That's not true. You, you have a body, a physical body. <clears throat> you only got one mouth. Aren't you glad? Now, I've, I've eaten some dessert at times. I wish I had two mouths. But the, the thing is, you have one voice, but there's a lot more of your body that's functioning in order for that voice to work or, or the mouth to move or the ears. So you need to understand that not everybody has the same gifts. Some gifts are more visible than others, and then some are less visible than others. Well, let's talk about the conveying of gifts in verse 7. Paul talks a lot about spiritual gifts in the New Testament, and he uses three words to describe them. First, he uses the word doma, which is gifts. To mean spiritual gifts, but most often he uses the Greek word charismata. Now that word means grace in action, charismata, um, grace gifts. We get the word charismatic from that, but it's a Bible word. Forget about how it's used in the world today, chorus. Charis, C-H-A-R-I-S, is the word for grace. The word mata is a suffix meaning it's working. It's grace working. It's God's grace working in you, working through you. It's working automatically. It means grace working that you didn't ask for it. It's God's using you. God's working through you. Paul's talking about spiritual gifts, and most Christians are ignorant about spiritual gifts. That's why he wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, 1, when he said, now about spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be ignorant. These are grace gifts given to you. 
Now, why do I keep emphasizing that? Because, folks, there are people today who will tell you that if you don't have certain gifts, then you're not, you don't have the Holy Spirit. And there are people that say you need to pray for certain gifts. But that's not the way God works. God gives you what he wants you to have. It's God's nature to give has nothing to do with anything we've done or failed to do. We can only receive them, the gifts that he's given you, the grace in which we stand, he says. Now, that's spoken of in Romans 5, 2, not only saves us, but it enables us. We stand here in grace today. We've been saved by the grace of God, but also the grace of God enables us to do what we do for his kingdom. Amen? You understand that? The definite article used in the original text indicates that this is the grace, that is grace that is unique only to Christ. It signifies what's been given to us through him. And did you notice he said, according to the measure of Christ's gifts. It's measured out to be consistent with what the Lord wants us to have. The amazing thing is we're a body of Christ. We are believers, a family of believers, and God's given us each gifts to be used together to make this church function like he wants it to function. We're not all the same. Christ's gift, or the word Doria, does not focus on the undeservedness of the gift, uh, but, but more the source Each believer's gift is unique. You've been given the measure. God's measured out to you at least one gift, sometimes more than one. He's measured it out to you. He's sovereign. He knew what you could do. He knew what he wanted you to do. Not that what you could do, he's going to do through you. But again, I mentioned to you, no gift should be sought. You don't ask for this gift. At the same time, No gift should be unused. You shouldn't hide it. You shouldn't bury it. No gift should be exalted. I've been around people who they want to brag about what their gifts are, and they want you to know about it, or they call attention to themselves. Listen, the only one that's exalted when we worship together is the Lord Jesus. And when we begin to call attention to ourselves, we begin to exalt ourselves. And just because you've been given a gift doesn't mean you're any better than anyone else that's got a gift. You've just got a different one. Let me ask you this. Can you, uh, which is more important, your lungs, plural, or your heart? Well, you can't live without either one, can you? So you can't, you, you can't imagine them saying, well, I'm more important than you are. Oh, yeah? Well, let me just, let me just quit breathing for you, see how well you do. Get the hearts arguing. You know, we don't exalt them. And when you look at Romans 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, there are approximately 19 different gifts that are mentioned. Now, we're not going to look at all of those tonight. But we're, gonna, we're getting back here to Ephesians. But I'm trying to, to, to let you know that 
there's not just a single kind of gift. There are different kinds of gift. A hundred believers with the gift of teaching will not all have the same degree of teaching, but they're all teachers. They're not all the same. I mean, we're not clones. God takes our personality. God uses other things in our life, but he may give you the gift of teaching, but you may teach in a different style than someone else that does, but you still have that gift. And so serving gifts are the same way. There are gifts of service, but not everybody serves the same way. And so I want you to see that you are unique and that God has given you gifts through his spirit that he wanted you to have. Now, when you add the, the personality and the person's background and their education and the influences they've had on their life and the needs in the area of service, that all comes into play too because God uses all of that. But it starts with him giving you at least one gift. And a believer's single gift will not be restricted to only one category of giftedness. An individual gift may have a number of specific areas. Someone with a major gift of administration may also have something of the gifts of fingerprints. Each one is completely distinct. Teachers may emphasize knowledge, some instruction, some mercy, and so forth. I hope I'm not confusing you, but I want you to understand that we are not assembly line Christians. We're not all the same. Consequently, no Christian can replace another Christian in God's kingdom. Now, what I mean by that, it doesn't mean that the job won't get done because God's doing it. But folks, did you know that when you are gone, you're going to leave a hole? And I'm not just talking about a chair. I'm talking about you're going to leave a hole in the body of Christ. Because, as Mr. Rogers would say, there's no one exactly like you. Sometimes, do you ever get a gift that you don't have any use for? We put them in a drawer, we store them in the garage, or then we give them to someone else. But God doesn't give gifts that way. He didn't waste a gift on you. He knows what he wants to do through you. And so he doesn't give that way. A noted brain surgeon, Dr. Bronson Ray, was taking a stroll when he saw a boy on a scooter smash headfirst into a tree. Realizing that the boy was seriously injured, the doctor told a bystander to call an ambulance. And as he proceeded to administer first aid, a boy not much older than the injured one who had just run into the tree nudged to the crowd that had gathered and said to Dr. Ray, who's the brain surgeon, I'd better take over now, sir. I'm a Boy Scout and I know first aid. But you know, as, as ridiculous as that sounds, it's no worse than someone in the church trying to do something for which someone else is better qualified. Not to use our gift is an insult to God's wisdom. God said, I'm giving you this opportunity, I'm giving you these gifts, not to use them as an insult. So we didn't determine it, we didn't deserve it, we didn't earn it. But we all have a gift from the Lord, and if we do not use it, his work is weakened and his heart is grieved. 
And so the intent of the text is to reveal the balanced relationship between the oneness of believers. We're all one for these various reasons, but also that our diversity contributes to the oneness. What makes this body function is all of our unique gifts. Some of you have abilities. I stand back amazed. It's because God's given it to you. Y'all got that? Well, I want you to notice the cost of grace. Look at verse 8. Now, before he mentions a few of the gifts he's given, he uses Psalm 68, 18. In fact, verse 8 is, is Psalm 68, 18 to show how Christ received the right to bestow these gifts. God, the Lord is the one who has the right to give them. And Psalm 68 is a, is a victory hymn by David to celebrate a victory, God's conquest of the Jebusite city and the triumphant ascent of God represented by the Ark of the Covenant. You can read about this up Mount Zion, 2 Samuel verses chapter 6 and 7 and 1 Chronicles 13. But that psalm comes from that. And, and Paul quotes that. He actually changes one word. Now, do you know which word he changed? Paul quotes 68:18. He actually changes one word. He talks about where Jesus ascended on high. He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. But Paul changed it because in Psalm 68:18, a picture of God it says he received gifts from men. Actually, he changed a couple of words. In other words, because of the conquest, the Lord received gifts and praise, and like a victorious general returning from battle, Jesus is sharing the, the, the gifts. And Paul is employing a very moving picture here in the first century. He said, a Roman general coming back from battle, he's entering Rome in a parade, and there's a procession. He enters, and the victorious general is riding a beautiful chariot drawn by those white horses, and then chained to the chariot would be the defeated general of the enemy. And that's a picture of Satan defeated. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, he had Satan chained to the chariot, so to speak. And that's why Colossians 2.15 says, having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. The general who lost was made a public spectacle. But this picture goes on beyond that here in Ephesians 4 because it says he led captivity captive. Now, in Roman victories, the possessions behind the general and behind the one that, that had lost, you know who was next in line? It was all of the Roman POWs that had been set free. Because when the Romans conquered, if, if any of the, the Romans had been con uh, captured, when they defeated the enemy, the POWs on their side were the next ones in line. They'd been set free. They'd been led, and people would cheer them, and, and um, they, it was a place of honor. 
when Jesus ascended back into heaven, he carried captivity captive. Souls that had been captured. Now, it was part of his victory march. I, I, I'm going to tell you, I don't have all the answers to this. I'm going to tell you what some of the early church fathers said, but it's interesting. One, one footnote here. When Jesus came to the earth, the Magi brought gifts to him. Gold, frankincense, and myrrh. When Jesus ascended into heaven, he sent back gifts to us. He gave us gifts to be used in the kingdom. When Jesus ascended to heaven, the Roman general, let me back up, the Roman general conquered a land. He looted that land. He looted the national treasury. He brought back the finest artwork. He brought back gold and silver. He brought back home, all that stuff from that land. And you know what he would do with it? He'd give it away, give it away to all his friends. And that's the picture Jesus going into heaven and saying, here, I've got some gifts for you now. I've got gifts through the Spirit of God, through the Holy Spirit, through my Spirit that you're going to give. Now, the phrase, here's a, here's a little confusion. I probably already got you confused. He ascended on high. When he returned from battle back to glory, when the Lord was resurrected, and after the times he appeared to all the believers, he's gone back to glory. He left this battlefield and has gone back to glory. He ascended on high. He led captivity captive. And then upon arriving, he gave gifts to men. Now, you see the part in verse 9 when he begins to try to explain it. He says, what does it mean he ascended? At first, he descended into the lower parts of the earth. That's really just a general phrase to mean he came to the earth and there was no place that he didn't um, affect, he, that he, he didn't cover. Now, 1 Peter 3.8 and 19 sheds a little light on this when Jesus was put to death physically on the cross Peter says he descended and made a proclamation to the spirits in prison now the word proclamation there is not the word for preach the good news there's several words for preaching several words for declaration one of the words for preaching is to preach the good news, the gospel. This one was not that word. It was used to declare something. And I believe that Jesus descended and declared that he had won the victory. I do not believe that he found people that had died apart from belief in God and he gave them another chance and then took them to heaven. That's not what he's saying. Now, the Old Testament refers to a place of the dead called Sheol. Deuteronomy 32, 22, Job 26, 6, Psalm 16, 10, and so forth. Part of Sheol was a place of torment occupied by the, occupied, occupied, I'm not tired or anything, occupied by 
the unrighteous dead. And also, Jude tells us the demons who had been confined and bound there before the flood. Jude 6, 2 Peter 2, 4. There's a place, a holding place. When Christ descended to Sheol, he proclaimed victory to the place of the dead. He proclaimed victory. Colossians 2.15, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and made a public display of them. At the same time, the announcement to the demons, both bound and loose, they were all subject to Christ. In other words, basically, God, he just declared victory over sin and victory over death and that the powers of hell had no power against him. He did not deliver people who had no faith in God. Now, I will tell you that, and, and I'm not sure that that's what Paul is saying right here, but another part of Sheol was believed to be a place of happiness. Abraham's bosom, paradise, as mentioned. And that apparently there were some common designations for Sheol at the time of Christ. Early church doctrine taught that the righteous dead of the Old Testament could not be taken into God's presence until Jesus had atoned for their sin because God is holy and perfect. And so that after he died on the cross, that he purchased their redemption, so to speak, and he took those that had died in faith or that were in Abraham's bosom or paradise, wherever, he took them to be with the Lord. And now when we go, when we die, according to 2 Corinthians 5, 8, we go to be with the Lord. Now, you, I'm not sure you can pull all of that out of here because you're going to strain to do that. But Paul's point in the whole passage here in Ephesians is to explain that he paid an infinite price of coming to the earth and suffering on our behalf and dying for us, taking us to heaven when we die, and giving us gifts to serve him here on the earth. And that's probably about 10 minutes too long of an explanation. But I want you to see when he says in verse 9, above, he, he first, verse 8, he ascended on high. Some, I've heard say that, you know, he even, when he ascended, he came through the domain of Satan because he's the prince of the power of the air. And I think you have to read a lot into that. But let's just suffice to say this. Jesus won. You'd probably say, well, why didn't you say that in the first place? <laughs> I don't have all the answers to that. I, I, I do, but I, it does make sense to me that people would be waiting to t go to to the, to the heaven after their sins had been atoned for, but um, but I don't I do know it does not teach the doctrine of purgatory or a second chance and somebody's going to a holding tank and you can pray them out of that. There's none of that there. There's none of that there. So don't even begin to think that. All you got to worry about now on this side of the cross and Pentecost is that when you die, you go home. In fact. I've used it the last two days in, in messages. Just a recent, a recent discovery for me. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. You've heard that. 
The word absent means to immigrate. To be present is a word used for homeland, where you belong. So when a Christian dies, you go home where you belong. We don't belong here. We're strangers and pilgrims and foreigners. We don't belong here. We think, oh, I'm going to have to give all this up to go to heaven. No, you're going home when you go there. Well, i got to get back on this. Verse 11, notice the inclusive gifts to the body. He himself gave. He gave. Notice the sovereignty of the Lord. He gave. Basically, the first gifts were the gifts for the foundation of the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, 28, Paul said, God has appointed in the church, and listen to this, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers. Now, I believe since you're doing one, two, and three, the statement adds weight to it because there's a chronological significance, first, second, and third giving these gifts to the church. The first two classes of gifted men, uh, there were apostles and prophets, were given three basic responsibilities. They were given the responsibility to lay the foundation of the church. We've already seen that in Ephesians 2.20 where it talked about the foundation of the apostles. He, we, they were also to receive and declare the revelation of God's Word. Acts 11.28, Acts 21.10 and 11, Ephesians 3.5, the apostles were given the revelation. They wrote it down. They were given. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And then they also gave confirmation of the Word of God, that God was the real God through signs and wonders and miracles. 2 Corinthians 12, 12, Acts 8, 6, and 7, Hebrews 2, 3, and 4. God bestowed upon them at times the ability to do things to confirm that it was true. And I want to tell you that when they did signs and wonders, they didn't just pull them out of the hat and do them anytime they wanted them. They, for example, you know, Paul healed some people, but his own son in the faith, Timothy, who was a believer. He never healed Timothy. So some of the things you see today when people just claim they can do anything they want to, anytime they want to, that's not biblical. What, what was an apostle? Are there any apostles today? No. Now there are some who think they are. And really, and really truly, the closest thing I guess you would think the word apostle means sent with a mission. And we send people with a mission, missionaries. They're not apostles. But in the most technical sense, the word was used of the 12. Matthias, who replaced Judas, and Paul, who was called out of due season. Because the qualifications for the apostleship was, one, they had to have been chosen by Christ. Two, they had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. You can find us in Mark 3.13 and Acts 1.22. And Paul was the last to meet those qualifications because Jesus called him on the road to Damascus and he saw the, the resurrected Christ. He 
excuse me, he called himself an apostle out of due time. But folks, these folks that claim to be an apostle today, they haven't seen Jesus. They weren't chosen by Jesus personally. So the, the real word for this, the position, the, I believe the position ceased when the foundation, the New Testament was finished, the foundation was laid. There are no more apostles. And the message of the apostles was general and doctrinal. We, we still teach that today. I mean, we're, I mean, Paul, we're looking at Paul's letter right here. Peter and John and, and others. The second one was the prophets. Prophets were also appointed by God. Now, I'm not talking about the gift of prophecy. There is a such gift, but it's basically forth-telling or telling forth the Word of God and speaking, thus saith the Lord. It's not telling the future. Not all believers could be called prophets. It seems that, you know, there is a gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 12.10. It seems that the office of prophet was exclusively within a local congregation where the apostleship was more of a broader ministry and the prophets of those days would, would help guide locally, thus saith the Lord. Sometimes they spoke revelation from God, sometimes simply expounded the revelation that had already been given by the apostles. But they always spoke for God, but not always a new revelation. And when the New Testament came, the prophet ceased also in this sense. Now, the gift of prophecy would be somebody, if you ever meet somebody with a gift of prophecy, you're going to know it. Not because they're going to tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. It's just everything. They, they don't have any mercy. Well, that's not the way to put it. Very little. I mean, you wouldn't want, if you're not feeling well, don't go talk to somebody with the gift of prophecy. Because basically everything they say to you is, this, this is what the Bible says. The Bible says this. This is the truth. You need to deal with it. If you don't like it, lump it. You know, it's, it's kind of a... But we need them. We need people with the gift of prophecy to, to foretell the Word of God. That's different from the, the office of prophet. And let me tell you, there are people today who claim they still get a revelation from God. It sure is hard not to call names. <laughs> Their office ceased when the New Testament was complete. If I were to stand up here and tell you I got a revelation from God that um, I, don't, I can't even think of one, but, I, it, but it wouldn't agree with the Bible. You would say, no, here's the authority not your revelation because it's complete. Now, now God can reveal some things to you you've never seen before, obviously, but you don't change this. But I, I get so tired of people hearing people say, well, you know, I, had a, I got a word of knowledge now. 
God's given me this word. The church, according to Ephesians 2.20, says the church was established upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. We already have it. We don't need any new. I don't need any new revelation from God. I've got all the revelation I can handle. Amen? I'm sounding kind of ugly tonight. Don't mean to, but I've got strong feelings about it. Evangelist. Now, evangelists are still around. The specific term evangelist is used only right here in Ephesians. In this text, in Acts 21.8, Philip is called an evangelist. And in 2 Timothy 4.5, where Timothy is told to do the work of an evangelist, but this particular word here, the noun form of it, it's only found here. But these limited references describe a vital Extensive, far-reaching ministry indicated by the verb euangelizomai, which evangelist, euangelo, evangelism, comes from that word. And an evangelist, that word, that noun is used, the good news, euangelion is the word for good news, which has the word evangelism in it. Euangelion preached the good news as you 76 times in the New Testament. But the work of an evangelist is to, explain, is to preach the good news of salvation to those who have not yet believed. To proclaim salvation by grace through faith in the Son of God. Now, Philip demonstrates that as an evangelist. <laughs> he was not a man with 10 suits and 10 sermons. That runs a road show. I'm, I know of one or two. I don't know many evangelists, but the ones that I do know personally are the real thing. And they have a gift of drawing the net and leading people to Christ. We've had Tim Lee in here a couple of times. Tim Lee doesn't say anything that I don't say on Sunday, except I don't have his testimony. But why is it when he draws a net, people respond? He's got a gift. That's of God. And I'm not jealous of it. I'm just telling you, it, they, there's something about the way that God uses them. New Testament evangelists were missionaries and church planners. They went where Christ had not been named, and they led people to Christ. Then they taught the new believers the word, built them up, and moved on to new territory. Timothy illustrates that. He identified with a local church for a while, and then he would move on. And so there are still evangelists today. Some of the people that call themselves evangelists, I don't think are the real thing. I've known a few guys. Um, I'm not going to tell you their names, but I've known a few guys that just got tired of messing with the pastor in the church, and they decided they'd go into evangelism. Well, that's not the reason you go into evangelism. You need to have that gift. And then the pastor teacher. Pastors translates the word poeman, shepherd. It emphasizes the care, protection, and leadership of the man of God for the flock. And teachers 
has to do with the primary function of the pastor. Now, teaching can be identified as a ministry of its own because 1 Corinthians 12, 28 says some people have the gift of teaching. But when you read all of the criteria for pastors or shepherds, I, I personally believe that shepherds, elders, presbyteros, uh, overseer, I believe that all refers to the same, same office. But there's one qualification given in 1 Timothy 3, 2 through 7 that relates to function. The rest of it are personal characteristics. You're supposed to be able to teach. Apt to teach. All the other qualifications are of personal character. Shepherd involves feeding, protecting the flock. A spiritual overseer of the church, teaching shepherds are determined and guide and oversee and and preach and exhort and refute and to act as shepherds, setting an example for all people. Every believer today is indebted either directly or indirectly to somebody who's taught them. I mean, we're all uh, grateful. We're all indebted to somebody who taught us. And we're supposed to, they're also supposed to lead to people by example. And so all of the gifts that Christ gives to individuals and to the church as a whole are gifts which he himself perfectly exemplified. He's a perfect example of all the gifts of the Spirit. Why? Because he's God and the Holy Spirit, the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, he perfectly exemplified all the gifts. Now, the gifts for the function of the church, verse 12, there's one reason for the, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Four foundational gifts mentioned in verse 11, and the reason is given in verse 12. First is the service of the church. Who's supposed to do the ministry? Let me ask you this question. How many of you have been called to ministry? All of you need to raise your hand. Now, when you think of that, well, I, I, the call to ministry is not just preaching or teaching. The call to ministry is to use the gifts that God's given you for the ministry of the church. Some gifts are speaking gifts. Some gifts are what we call support gifts, like the gift of service, the gift of encouragement, the gift of giving, the gift of faith. Some of the gifts in the New Testament are what were sign gifts. They were to authenticate the message. I'm asked all the time, do, do you still believe God heals? Yes. But I don't believe in faith healers. No. God can do anything he wants to. And I don't doubt that. Uh, let me just move on. 
World War II, there was a cathedral outside of London. It was a beautiful statue of Jesus. He was standing there with his hands extended, but during the Nazi blitz, the statue and the cathedral were demolished. And after the war, they rebuilt the cathedral, and they even found many of the pieces of the statue. So they reconstructed the statue, but they never found the hands. The hands were crushed. And so the statue was rebuilt without the hands. Now, I don't know if that statue's still there today, but they placed a plaque at the base of the statue that read, reads, He has no hands but your hands. And we are to be the hands and feet of Jesus doing the ministry of the church. I am so thrilled at how many of people in this church do so many things. Some of you do things that are never, ever seen done. You minister to one another. You love one another. We have, we have people that use their gifts for all kinds of help. And the re- I'll tell you why the Lord has his hand on this place. It's because we keep lifting up Christ and we keep using the gifts we have for him. But the day that we start bragging about what we're doing and who we are and what we have and blah, 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 that's the day the Lord said, yeah, I'll show you. He'll just take his hand off of it. And so he also uses the gifts to strengthen the church, the strengthening of it. The work of ministry is carried out to edify, to build up the church. Our gifts are like tools. We bring our tools together to work in the kingdom and we need all of you. In Romans 12, 6, it says, let us use them. In 1 Peter 4, 10, since we have received the gift, minister it to one another. Gifts are not to show off with. The spiritual gifts are not to call attention to yourself. The spiritual gifts are supposed to build up other people and to help the church. I'm thankful for you folks. I'm, I'm thankful that we have so much diversity as far as the gifts go, but we're, but we're unified. We're unified because we know that Jesus is Lord and that he's the only way to be saved, and we are to, to share the gospel with people and to, to make disciples. We're unified in that, but I'm so glad that we have so many other personalities and gifts and abilities. And so thank you for using your gift. Well, I'm going to stop right there. And we'll pick up there next Wednesday night. Um, I don't remember, did I mention... I did mention we have another funeral Monday. Right. Okay. I just want to make sure you knew. Pray for Ron, Ron Foyd. All right. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you that you've gifted us in different ways. Sometimes we wish we were like someone else, and yet you, in your sovereignty, you have proportioned out what you want us to have to serve you. So may we be faithful, overcome our fears, overcome our excuses, 
may we be faithful to use what you've given us to help others. I pray for teachers. I pray for those with the gift of service. I'm so thankful for the people with the gift of service who serve in so many ways. They don't need any accolades. They don't care who knows. They just serve you. I thank you for the people who have mercy. The gift of mercy. There are folks that just have that gift. Thank you for those who have the gift of administration and those who can teach and, and those who can, they've got, they've got a gift of faith. They just, they just stand out. I, I thank you for those that, I know we're all supposed to give, but there are some who have that gift of giving way above what normal people give. So thank you for those that are faithful and help us each to use them for your kingdom, for your glory. They give you all the credit. We do pray for those that have lost loved ones. We pray for our services Sunday. Lord, I know that Sunday is pretty black and white when it comes to salvation. So I pray for those that will hear the gospel, for those who need Jesus. I pray that you'll speak to their hearts, bring them to you. Thank you for this church. Thank you for Southcrest. Thank you that you've allowed me to be a part of it. I pray that you'll be with each one tonight as they go, that you'll keep them safe. In Jesus' name, amen. Folks, would you pray for Sunday? We're to that place about the broad way and the narrow way. Did you know last Sunday we had some people who visited that were of the Hindu faith. You never know who you're going to sit by. You never know who walks in the door who needs Jesus. So if you see somebody, you're sitting next Sunday in your spot, and if they're in their spot, you pray for them. But, if, but when you see them and you don't know them, say, Lord, I don't know who those people are, but I pray that if they don't know you, they'll come to know you today. Because I'm telling you, uh, it's either or. You either know Jesus or you don't. <laughs> there's, no middle, there's no middle ground. There's no commuter lane. You're on this side of the road or you're on this side of the road. So you pray for them. Thank you. You're, you're dismissed. You're out five minutes early. Thanks for listening to this installment of the Southcrest Wednesday Night Series featuring Senior Pastor David Wilson. Remember, you can also live stream our Sunday and Wednesday services. Go to southcrestlive.tv for more details or to southcrest.org to learn more about Southcrest Baptist Church. And thanks for listening.